This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Next Question with Katie Couric. And no, Katie does not have laryngitis and a kind of nasally sick sounding voice. No, Katie is taking one more week off after her book tour. And I am excited to step in. My name is Brian Goldsmith. Uh, I'm Katie's former producer and actually her one time podcast co-host. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, I'm very excited about our podcast today. Brian, how does this compare to other conventions you've witnessed? This is much different. It cost more than $300 million in 2016 dollars to build. How do you know this? I did a little research beforehand. And this is named after Gary Hart. No, Phil Hart. Good. He's a uh, <laughs> longtime senator from Michigan. So podcasting isn't really what I do anymore. I'm now a media and tech consultant, but still a political junkie as obsessed with elections today as I was back in 2008 when I was lucky enough to be part of the team behind Katie's iconic interviews with Sarah Palin. Have you ever been involved with any negotiations, for example, with the Russians? We have trade missions back and forth. We, we do. It's very important when, when you consider even national security issues with Russia as Putin rears his head and, and uh, comes into the airspace of the United States of America. Where, where do they go? It, it's Alaska. It's just right over the border. So today, Katie asked me to talk about what else politics were about to head into a new year, an election year, a very big one. And I thought it would be helpful to look ahead at the political landscape in 2022. Who are going to be the players shaping the midterms? What are the big issues and forces? And what are the consequences of the elections next year? We're lucky to be joined today by two of the sharpest, wittiest politicos I know, two of my favorite texting buddies, in fact, Republican strategist Mike Murphy, who is kind of a defrocked Republican strategist these days because he's a Republican against Donald Trump. But in the old days, he worked for John McCain, Mitt Romney, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and many others. And Democratic strategist Liz Smith, who has also been around the block politically, although not as many times as Mike, whom I actually met when she was the senior communications advisor to my pal Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president. So let's start by talking about the campaign next year. Uh, What's at stake? 34 Senate seats, every House seat, 36 governor's races. Um, Just very simply, why do the midterms matter? And and Mike, let's start with you. Well, they they matter on sort of two dimensions. Uh, One, they matter because particularly now we're, we're at a historically thin margin even in the House. And of course, we're tied in the Senate. So it, one party will gain a lot of power. My guess is the Republicans will win the House. 
which gives them the checkbook, which will take the Biden agenda on domestic policy to a screaming halt on anything big and budget driven. The, the other in the Senate, somebody's going to win and somebody's likely to lose. It could wind up 50-50, which is de facto Democratic because the VP can cast a tie. But um, it, it could deleverage the, in my view, heroic moderates like Manchin and Cinema, uh, if the Dems can run up their number and get tighter ideological control. Finally, I'd say the other dimension is the narrative. Is Biden going up or going down? It's, um, you know, there's all this bullshit in politics. Everybody has an opinion. You can find 200 different cable TV channels or podcasts or whatever. But elections are like the Wall Street phrase, mark to market. It's the one day where the voters get to straighten out all the BS. You can see what's really going on out there. And the midterms are the most important measure like that other than a presidential race. And Liz, do you agree with Mike that if the Republicans win one or both houses, Biden's agenda comes to a screeching halt? Uh, it, it, it becomes a lot harder to implement. And I agree with him about the narrative, right? It becomes a narrative problem for Joe Biden. But I would point to the 2010 election, right? De- Democrats got our asses kicked. You know, I was in Ohio in 2010. I worked for Ted Strickland. It was one of the few races that was actually very close. It was like a 2.0 margin or something like that. Um, and the narrative coming out of 2010 was that you know, Barack Obama was dead man walking um, it, for 2012. Of course, he ended up winning fairly handily in 2012. Um, but part of it was that it was a kick in the, you know, it was a, uh, a kick, kick in, in the, the balls, you know really. where, yeah. I, I know, sorry, I, I, I'm not sure what we, type we of language I'm supposed to We need a gender neutral phrase, by the way, under the new rules of the Democratic <laughs> Party. So it was a, a kick in a dense area full of nerves that it causes great pain. Okay, let's, exactly. let's move on, dot org. But, 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 but let me, let me, okay, but let me just say this. Was it was, um, it was a wake up call for Democrats that we needed to go more on the offensive and we needed to um, make sure that we were making clear the choice between Democrats and Republicans and really going out and selling our agenda. And the one frustration that um, I have at times right now with the Democratic Party is that we know we hear every day how popular Build Back Better or Biff or whatever is, but we're not out there necessarily communicating as aggressively uh, as we could be about these things and about the choice that voters face between Democrats and Republicans. Okay, and we're gonna come back to that, but I I wanna zoom out for for one more minute, which is um, there's a history of this. President's parties, almost always lose a lot of seats in the midterms. And, and Particularly most in the first term. Exactly. Um, yeah. Since 1946, the average midterm loss for a president's party is 25 seats. And it's very closely tied to the president's approval rating. That is the number of people in a poll who say they approve of the job that the president is doing. For presidents below 50% approval, which is basically where President Biden has been since the summer, the average loss is 37 House seats. And so, you know, even half of that would wipe away the Democratic House majority. Um, is there anything that the president, the White House, the Democratic Party can do um, in the face of these, you know, really powerful historical headwinds? Or are, do they basically need to accept that the House is lost? Well, they. my advice to them would be to stop fucking up um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Good I'm, advice. I'm probably violating the uh, no, no. It's okay. Rule. It's okay. We can put it in on this episode. <laughs> yeah. So here's the problem. You're right, and that's the you know I think, and I think Liz is right too. You can overinterpret the midterms. Um, it's loaded against the the incumbent president, particularly in the first term. But that said, when your polling numbers are collapsing, when you ran as the alternative to chaos to bring normalcy back. But instead, you've got kind of an ideological chaos of your own going. Um, then all those life rafts of, well, this is the traditional bump in the road. It doesn't tell the big picture. Well, the big picture is, is right now medium disaster politically for Joe Biden of huge exploding doubts. And at least in the conventional wisdom beltway, which means maybe you got to discount him a little for Kamala Harris. And so when you add upon that the traditional trouble you've got in the midterms, it becomes an amplifier of the narrative. So what can a White House do? Um, they can use the political power of the presidency in a competent way to try to marginalize the losses and 
make it easier for those losses to be defined as historical normal. Right now, they're going to be defined, if nothing changes, as obvious result of political disaster uh, for the Democratic Party and the president, uh, both ideological in my view and, you know, the, the increasing thing, questions about Biden. You know, why, why do they keep stumbling? Blah, blah, blah. And there'd be, there'd be a chorus of partisans who are going to say that no matter what he does. But I think most honest reporters right now think, well, his poll numbers are collapsing. He hasn't hit a home run. The best thing he had, infrastructure, got lost in this house slappy fight between the progressives and the few remaining moderates. Joe Manchin is running the country, not Joe Biden, and he's a, he's a weak bystander. So you, you don't set up the midterms to mean more by the stumble bum stuff that they've somehow become caught in. So some Liz, of it's their fault, some of it not. Liz, let me, let me build off of that. Do you think there's a stumble bum narrative that's developed around the president? Because I'll give you the alternative case, which is, you know, he came in and very quickly passed the American Rescue Plan. He passed a bipartisan infrastructure plan that most people doubted could get done. Uh, The economy's roaring back much more quickly than was projected when he took office. So why is his approval rating at 40 or 42 percent? Uh, well, I think some of it is due to things out of his con- control. Um, there is a lot of fatigue with COVID, you know, the fact that it's seemingly never going away. And um, a lot of that is out of his control. And, you know, he can go out there and point out, well, he accelerated back getting vaccines to more people. Republicans fought them at every, um, fought them tooth and nail at every step. But as long as people, you know, feel burdened by, you know, continued mask mandates and um, lockdowns, whatever it is, that I think that that's going to hurt him. Um, So I think that some of the narrative around him is unfair, given the things that he's been able to do, which to me highlights why they've got to be aggressive in going out and selling their agenda and, and selling the great things that they have done. And I know that the White House is planning on doing that. And we've seen the White House be more aggressive uh, in recent weeks doing that. Um, but another thing is to Mike's earlier point, I'm going to censor m- myself for once, um, <laughs> about to stop. Uh, I'm making history Liz- here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I know, he's, I know. Mike is less profane than Liz Smith. That's shocking. Yeah. Right. Right. This is like Katie Couric after dark here. So, um, <laughs> but uh, is what we saw in Virginia, in New Jersey, that was very troubling to me is that Republicans were seen as more in touch with voters, as more in touch with their concerns. Um, and I think the Democrats allow themselves to get sort of thrown off what should have been the core message, um, the message that really voters care about, which is we're improving your life, we're delivering economic results for you, we're trying to lower costs, we're trying to fight COVID. Um, and instead, you know, they're going off on tangents about stuff like uh, critical race theory and and defending um, school closures, which are you know about as you know popular as herpes at this point. So Democrats need to get go more on the offensive about the very good things that we've done. Because again, we are the party right now that is fighting to lower costs for people. We are fighting um, to get people childcare tax credits, all these great economic things. Republicans are standing in the way of that. And instead, we're going down these crazy rabbit holes and culture wars that we don't need to be in the middle of. The other thing that Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate in Virginia, really tried to do was link the Republican to Donald Trump. And that became a core element of his message and didn't seem to work. Um, Do you think that that portends something for the elections next year? It does. And I'd be interested to hear Mike's Mike's take on this. But I'll just say briefly, if you look at 2018, when um, Democrats took back the House, uh, even with all this gerrymandering and everything, we were able to take back the House. You look at the ads that Colin Allred ran that Andy Kim ran that Lauren Underwood ran. These are all House challengers, Democrats who beat Republicans to take the House that year. Right. Thank you for for clarifying that. Yes, they were not um, ads about Donald Trump. They were not hair on fire sort of Lincoln Project ads. They were ads um, that were focused on economic issues, on health care, which was the number one issue in 2018. And I think it's incumbent on Democrats to understand that um, 
that while the Beltway conversation might revolve completely around Trump, you know, most people's lives don't. You know, they just care if they can pay their bills. And uh, the more that we're talking about those things, bread and butter issues, and the less we're talking about Trump, the better. And I would advise Democrats to go back to that 2018 playbook. And Mike, do um, Democrats um, have the capacity to argue that when they're in charge, uh, 60% of the country believes we're on the wrong track. Biden owns people's perceptions of the economy, which are really bad right now, despite the stock market, but despite the headline unemployment numbers, some combination of costs, inflation, uh, maybe chaos in Washington is leading people to decide that, you know, no matter what Biden says, they uh, they disagree with it. Well, the the premise of your question, yes, I mean, Biden's the captain, so it's going to be about him. And in the beltway, in the chattering class, it's always about Trump. Out in voter land, if you're not operating within the Demo- excuse me, the Republican primary electorate, Trump is rearview mirror, yesterday's news, why are you still talking about him? The biggest problem we have now on the Republican side is we have this kind of cement head bund that is scary, terrible, anti-patriotic, and basically now running the House of Representatives. Uh, and we'll run it farther if we get in the majority, which is likely. You, you have a larger faction, but they're cowards. So cowards don't count in factional war because they hide, they don't fight. But the Democrats in some ways have a bigger problem which is because our very democracy, and I I don't tend to be hysterical about this like some people, but it is under threat. Um, The Democratic Party is now too important for the Democratic leadership class because they're helping cause Trump 2.0 because they want to fight on identity. And the Democrats are stumbling into culture wars and they're holding a weak hand. Morally, they might argue they're holding a strong hand, but politically, it is a weak hand. It is secular superiority, mocking institutions, all about identity grievance. If you went to Joe Biden's website, and by the way, I voted for Biden. That's how much I hated Trump. You know, I was shaking. I needed a drink. It was a painful experience for me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a firm conservative, but I thought Trump's a danger to the, to the country. So I voted for Biden, and I had hopes he'd stick with his kind of centrist deal. And so... Back to Biden's website, if you if you went down on the landing page, there were like 15 little iconic cartoons of different groups. Every group's represented. And the Republican Party, and I'm channeling Mark Lilla here, who's a Columbia uh, professor, luckily for him, tenured. He's a liberal. He wrote a great short book I highly recommend, The Once and Future Liberal, after Hillary lost. But they do a, a corporatist in the political science sense of the word, uh, a, a democratic coalition of all these groups with grievances. I'm a left-handed Native American for Biden. I'm a this, I'm a that, uh, a confederation of groups. We do the one big unifying idea, Shining City on the Hill with Reagan, Make America Great Again with Trump, uh, that tries to unite everybody in that cause. So this groupism tells working-class white people, holy crap, we need to get a group. And then the Trumps of the world show up with their racism and their nativist argument. So the problem the Democrats have is getting out of this groupism that drives them and getting back to a unified message about how and middle-class economics, the Democratic Party will help you. And we're back into it now because even Biden's Build Back Better, which reminds me of the slogan of a chiropractic chain, um, is, is perceived as cost right now, not benefit. When you test the elements of it, there's voter candy in there all the way, but it's not relevant to what people think about Biden. Really quick, they also think Biden's weak. It's not about his eight-point policy plan. It's about he's the old man watching the house blow up and nobody will listen to him. And that's kryptonite for a president. Unfair, but that's the way politics works. We're going to take a break right now to pay the bills, and we'll be right back. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next-day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You're listening to Next Question. I'm Brian Goldsmith, and I'm talking with two of my favorite political strategists, Liz Smith and Mike Murphy, about the upcoming 2022 midterms. Let's get back to it. It is striking to me the extent to which performance may not matter. Policy may not matter as much anymore. I mean, Biden signed legislation that literally sent most Americans a direct deposit of $500 every month. Mm -hmm. And people don't know about it, or if they know about it, they don't give Biden credit for it. He passed this once in a generation, biggest investment in infrastructure since Eisenhower, and he got no credit, no lift in his numbers as a result. Has politics just become us versus them, tribalism, entertainment, disconnected from what's going on in the country or what Biden's able to accomplish? Well, I, I think a little bit it, it has become that. Um, uh, but again, just I think the Beltway conversation was very much focused on process. I do not think if you go around, ask your neighbors, ask your friends, that they that they really know a huge amount about the back and forth between the squad and cinema and mansion and all of that. Um, and it, it's always important, at least to me, to keep in mind that people like us are very much in the bubble. Um, but we have 11 months to sell this just because Biden didn't get. And I think it's silly to think that he would get some huge bump overnight just because he passed this bill. I know it's historic, but it goes to what you were saying, Brian, that there is a, a, high, a large amount of tribalism these days, and it is sort of hard to break through that. However, over the next 11 months, it's incumbent upon Democrats um, at every level to sell the hell out of his accomplishments and to point out the checks that people are getting. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I got 1400 dollar check and you know to anyone of any income that's a big chunk of change and if people know that democrats are doing this and that republicans have um tried to stop this sort of stuff at every step of the way that is a winning message for democrats in 2022 uh, but let me let me just quickly interject because i agree with all that but i have a big caveat the uh, two things one if see biden didn't get a lift from infrastructure because nothing ultimately happened it got passed in the senate but it didn't get passed passed by getting through the House quickly. So the White House communication machine could have turned on. And the thing is perfect for a three or four month. Wow, look what just got done fast and impossibly in D.C. Thank you, President Biden. You know, there's the oldest slogan in the world, Governor Rhodes in Ohio, Rhodes in progress. So he didn't get any of that. Instead, it became a confusing Washington slappy fight, just like before where the squad was like mad there weren't enough trillions in it and some guy from West Virginia said, and boom, it's lost in that. No opportunity to, hey, I got elected, Trump's gone, and I just built a lot of new highways and your brother-in-law can get a good union job. That was all taken from him. Now, maybe they have it now, but they could have run their messaging for six months on a big win. And to your point about issues not mattering, they matter less now because the old intermediaries are gone in the digital tribal age. In the old days, Walter Cronkite would say, this is amazing, the biggest infrastructure bill ever. Here's what it means to you. Now we got 800 channels. Half of them are just insanity of one tribe or the other uh, picking everything apart. So it's very hard to get the 
the awards you used to earn with real accomplishment out there. So you have to be better at doing less, doing big things, and hammering them in. Finally, one big problem they've got with this Build Back Better thing, the elements may test so well, but because the nature of the legislative process is to shove so many elements in it, no one element gets all the attention. If this were the child care bill, period, it would translate a lot more and help them. Instead, it's the big bundle of a trillion dollars worth of huge spending bill, which is easier to call inflation. So two more issues that may cut through the noise that you both are describing are uh, COVID and abortion. And let's, let's do one at a time. With COVID, Biden came in with a big advantage in terms of Americans' perception of his handling of that issue. Now people are, are evenly split. Liz, when you think about the unpredictable future variants, is Omicron going to be the new Delta or is it just going to be a blip? Um, are schools going to stay open? How do you assess the political impact, to put it in purely crass terms, of this once in a lifetime, hopefully, pandemic? Um, well, it, it, I mean, it's hard to assess because it's very unpredictable and we don't know how it's going to progress. However, I do think that he needs to learn from some of the mistakes of the past, the mistakes that we saw, um, you know, early on in the Trump administration and not repeat them, you know, not, uh, you know, and Democrats, and this isn't just Biden, this is Democrats uh, writ large, is to not, you know, rush to close schools. I think that the, the school closures were a disaster, the impacts of which are going to be felt for years and years and years in terms of you know, kids' mental health, um, economic impact on families, all of that. So to learn from the mistakes of the past, but to, you know, one thing that I was hardened by was when the news of the Omicron um, uh, variant came out, he responded right away and he was on top of it and showed that his administration was taking it very seriously. That's not something that the Trump administration was doing, you know, but he's still going to get punished um, for these things that are out of his control because there is a lot of fatigue with with COVID, and um, that's going to be a challenge for him. But as long as he shows decisive leadership and learns from the mistakes of the past, I think that's the best and most he can do. Well, he does own COVID. It's unfortunate. COVID yeah. is not kind to politicians. Right. When you're elected, hey, maybe something will be different. When nothing's different, they get mad at you. And there's no winning COVID on a political level if you're an incumbent because you're making people take castor oil. It doesn't go away overnight. COVID is not going to save Biden. Biden's going to endure COVID, but it's going to create right. damage. So the question is, how does he paint the forward picture that's not about identity grievances of what the Democratic Party is fighting for that'll help your life, other than a laundry list of programs? Biden was good in the campaign at being a regular guy with regular values who understood people who swing wrenches for a living. And that message has been lost about a month into his presidency. Um, because of the big megaphone of the, the progressives in the House, because COVID is something that, frankly, it requires political pain to solve. Um, if anything, and I've said this a lot on Hacks on Tap, I want Biden to start being much tougher uh, calling out the unvaccinated Americans as unpatriotic and beat the hell out of them. It, you know, it's a 60-40 advantage. Go on offense and at least be a fighter. Right now, Biden's an observer. And observer presidents in times of crisis do not do well. So he's got nothing to lose. He's on a spiral now. They are going to lose the House. They're highly likely to lose the Senate. So if I were Biden, I'd fight like I have nothing to lose and be tough Delaware Joe for a while because I think there's nowhere to go but up on this. And quit releasing term papers about we found a biodegradable way to ship the COVID for less emissions. You know, that's the Democratic term paper approach. It's great in Democratic primaries. It's great in the 200 counties that vote America, vote Democrat in America, but the other 3,000 counties, it's a cultural thing, and they may respect his toughness uh, if he starts showing it. Liz, another issue where Democrats feel like they've got a 60-40 advantage is support for Roe v. Wade. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, decision uh, that's coming from the Supreme Court, we think maybe in uh, June of next year, smack in the middle of the midterms, uh, could overrule it. Um, Will that energize the Democratic base? Will that save Democrats from a catastrophic midterm result? Is there stuff the party could be doing between now and then? 
Um, yes. So my, my view on this for a very long time has always been that, you know, worst case scenario for Republicans is if they actually do get a Supreme Court that overturns Roe v. Wade, because they just want to run on this issue for decades, 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 and, and use it, um, you know, as a, you know, a mechanism for grievance within their own party. This allows us to sort of flip the script and do what Republicans have been doing for decades and use this issue to motivate our base. Um, and there is, e even beyond the polling, I think that there is a, a even larger silent majority um, that is on the side of preserving Roe v. Wade, preserving abortion rights. If you look at um, states, for instance, states like South Dakota, as conservative, um, socially conservative as they come, uh, about a decade ago, they tried to do a ballot initiative to ban abortion. And everyone was like, well, of course, this is going to pass. They're going to ban abortion. This is South Dakota. I worked in South Dakota and I, I barely remember meeting any Democrats who at the doors would say um, that I'm pro-choice. And so I think that this will um, motivate not only Democrats, but, you know, Republicans, moderate Republicans, independents um, who see this as, you know, a fundamental overreach. Um, and it's Republicans' worst nightmare um, if, if, if this happens, I think. And it, it really takes an issue off the table for them. And it gives us a huge, huge motivating issue. Mike, you agree with that? Uh, partially. Uh, first of all, if you have an angry letter based on what I'm about to say, send it to Brian Goldsmith, <laughs> there Katie Couric podcast. The minor tragedy in this is that n nobody sees the Supreme Court through the prism of constitutional law anymore. It's basically, will they give me what I want and I believe in or not, which is not the purpose of the court. And Roe v. Wade is tricky constitutional law. The court basically tortured itself to find a way to please the majority of the country that was at least a reasonable argument constitutionally to create Roe v. Wade. Now, politically, people don't want big changes in abortion law in most places. Remember, the fight of Roe is should localities, states, make their own abortion laws or should it be federalized? If it is overturned, it's it's going to be political rocket fuel for the Democrats in some places and in other places it won't be. The suburbs, which are the key back and forth electorate, yeah. you know, against Trump, the Dems won them. In 2018 on health care, they won and Trump on popularity. In 2020, you know, Biden, Trump was rejected. In Virginia, they went back Republican. Uh, so it can happen. It, you don't get it for free by saying Trump. And in, in that world, it's going to be a mighty struggle between ideological fear of the Democrats, tax and spend liberals bring us inflation, which Democrats roll their eyes on. But that is an old hit. The Republicans know how to play it. And it works. It's working now. Or college-educated, pro-choice voters who are tempted to vote against Biden on all those things being horrified enough by the idea of fundamental changes in abortion rights, which, by the way, won't happen in most suburban states. So it's a little bit of an abstract issue, but it's very powerful. And finally, you know, $100 million is going to show up from low-dollar donors for the Democrats. There, it'll be, it'll mm -hmm. be huge. The problem is, will it be bigger than frustration with Biden? In most places, no. In a few of those suburbs, it could be. We will see. Last point, the suburbs will have an impact on the House races, but it's really these key Senate races where it, it could make the difference, where it could mm -hmm. take the Democrats out of the holder. And in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Nevada, or Nevada, sorry. Nevada, please. Yes, Half I my family is offended. Yeah. But anyway, to land the other debate, Roe will be a net plus for the Dems in the suburb if it's overturned. But I'm not sure it's the panacea. You know, both parties have a problem. They now treat their base voters like swing voters which means they retune their messaging only to appeal to voters they already have. Oh, you and, gave me a perfect segue, Mike, by the way. Well, that's, speaking that's of, why I'm here. Thank you. Speaking of base voters as swing voters, this is sort of a minor obsession of, of Liz's and mine. Um, Latinos, Hispanic voters in the country. Yes. Um, which are a critical part of the Democratic coalition. Barack Obama got about two thirds of them in 2012. Uh, Hillary performed magnificently among them. Uh, Biden saw a little bit of a dip among Latinos, uh, particularly, as we remember, Mike, in South Florida and in Texas. But he still got 63 percent of the Latino vote. Um, there's a poll out this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday 
that is sending shockwaves through Wall a lot Street of the Journal. political yeah. community. Yes, done yeah. by Biden's pollster and Trump's pollster together that finds for the first time in a generation that Hispanic voters are evenly split between the two parties, which could have profoundly negative consequences. Oh, it's huge for the for the Democrats. Yeah. 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 So, um, <laughs> Liz, why don't we uh, let's let's first start by talking about the the term Latinx, and then let's talk about the broader problem. I, I, I'm so I am so sick of all the ink that has been spilled spilled over this this goddamn word, you know. Um, and I, Latinx is like the political equivalent of mansplaining. Um, it is a bunch of uh, political operatives people sort of in the nonprofit in, uh, industry pushing this term that Latino people themselves don't use. And I remember being on a campaign, I'm not gonna say which campaign, and there was a contingent of staff who were demanding that we use the term Latinx. Our Latino staffers were like, you cannot use this term because we ourselves do not use this term. Um, and to me, it is just indicative of, um, uh, an issue with Democrats, which is that we're seen as not caring about, you know, people, um, that we're not in touch with people. And this bizarre obsession we have with this word when voters tell us over and over and over again not to use it speaks to this sometimes condescending image of Democrats that, you know, we know better, that, you know, that we're morally su superior to people. Um, um, but more broadly, can I get just speak more broadly about, I think, the issues with the Latino vote? I started to see, um, to have real concerns in 2016 uh, when Hillary's message uh, to the Latino community was just immigration, immigration, immigration. Um, Donald Trump is a racist. Uh, he wants to build a border wall. And I've worked in Latino politics. I've worked with, uh, in Puerto Rican politics, Dominican politics up here in New York. But the Latino community is not a monolith, right? You've got uh, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans, Venezuelans, et cetera. And so we cannot assume that every Latino voter um, cares about the same issues. But immigration is not even in the top three issues for uh, for Latino voters. Yet still, Democrats put it first and foremost when in, in all of our communications to Latino voters. And we've got to understand um, that if we want to win back Latino voters, we need to talk to them about the economy, about small businesses. Um, you know, the Latino community is, was hit very, very hard by COVID. And I think we've got to speak to them more on those, the, those issues. And one last point, um, cause I could go on about this forever is, um, we need to realize that while all liberals might be Democrats, not all Democrats are liberals and Hispanic Latino voters are traditionally more socially conservative, more and frankly more economically conservative um, than you know than the people who work on campaigns, people like me. And uh, we need to to understand that because issues like defund the police, um, issues uh, like the Green New Deal, certainly did push away Latino voters um, in areas like the Rio Grande Valley, which is very depend which. Um, is very dependent. Um, law enforcement provides a lot of jobs. The oil and gas industry provides a lot of jobs. So, end rant there. <laughs> I knew I'd get <laughs> well, you fired no, up about that. it's a good rant. Um, you know, I don't use the phrase Latinx. I agree with Liz about it. I prefer the phrase American uh, because it's back to the Republican thing of unified identities, uh, the American identity. Well, that's it a bit of the totally pre-Trump. That's a bit of the pre-Trump Republican oh, of thing, right? Of, of course. But look, look what the I I. A rare but huge mistake I watched the Biden campaign make, and Brian, you know about this. I, I was very involved with Republican voters against Trump. We were, people talk about the Lincoln Project. We were the grift-free anti-Trump. <laughs> I remember Trump it, thing. Mike, yeah. Yeah, you, you were involved. And we did a lot of work in Florida, a state I know very well from multiple governor and other campaigns for Jeb and, and others. And when they sent Kamala Harris to Miami, I thought, oh, my God, they totally don't get it. They're going down there with a voter of color argument. When if you've worked Dade County politics like I have for 25 years, th that is not the thing. Uh, Hispanic, uh, I'll go into the oldies bin, uh, voters down there, Americans of Hispanic heritage, uh, don't see themselves that way. 
they're more conservative, particularly as Liz says, socially conservative. They're very aspirational. They index high for two wonderful things, creating their own small businesses and enlisting in the military. And they have family experience, particularly in Miami, because the different Florida markets are different, with dictatorships, both in Venezuela and, mm -hmm. of course, in Cuba. And Biden had Cuba trouble from before being connected to Obama on that. Biden was the one who needed to go. If you look at the Wall Street Journal poll, multiple times, by the way, not send Kamala, who is a problem to build that coalition, because she tends to be a one-note candidate. If you look at that Wall Street Journal poll, the real cut isn't Latino, uh, non-Latino. It's gender. And that's the big cut through almost all data now. And the other big cut is college-educated. So the Democrats have to stop looking, and I'm sorry to be a broken record on this, but it's back to my point about the Democratic Party is too important for the Democratic leadership. They need to talk to their own voters and understand that the sophisticates and the sociology view of what makes a Democratic Party is not the political coalition that counts. And if they don't do that, the backlash against all that stuff is not only going to scare swing voters in the suburbs back away, it's going to elect Trump again. Trump gets rocket fuel from grievance to the Democratic uh, identity grievances. And, and it's crazy, uh, but it's frustrating because I think the internal Democratic Party politics are heavily weighted that way. And last thing, this is the grumpy old campaign consultant hour here, and I'll shut up. <laughs> After saying <laughs> yeah, well, one thing, that'll get you more <laughs> well, mail. See, you keep saying you're going to shut up, but... Yeah, okay. I'm, <laughs> so, I'm a politician, so it's a false promise. No. If I read about another Democratic campaign with a staff revolt because the 24-year-olds are unhappy that we're not using Latinx on the bumper stickers, no good high-stakes campaign should spend a lot of time listening to 24-year-olds. Um, wait till they're 30 and they have experience and listen a lot. You know, right, it's I'm a, done. Yeah, and... <laughs> And I got to tell you, know, Mike, I, I was talking with someone about this earlier today. It is a problem um, that the Democratic campaigns are staffed by people who aren't representative of most voters. Right. Like, I include myself in that. I'm sitting here in my, you know, duplex in the West Village with my Dartmouth diploma, probably somewhere in one of my closets. And I'm very well aware of that. And I think it's that's why it's important to um, not to one, have diversity of thought in these uh, campaigns, but understand that we don't necessarily have all the answers. And I, the 24-year-old staffer problem is an issue. And it is sort of, I think, at times pathetic that you do have these high-profile campaigns sort of being held hostage by um, kids who are just fresh out of Oberlin College. <laughs> when we come back, more political issues. And yes, unfortunately, the Donald Trump of it all. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you 
you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Let's close with everyone's favorite topic, uh, the end of democracy and Donald Trump. Um, there's a study that got a lot of attention this week um, that was referenced in a column in the Washington Post by Dana Milbank. A data analytics company combed through more than 200,000 articles from 65 different news websites across the ideological spectrum uh, to basically analyze whether stories were good stories, bad stories, or something in between for Joe Biden, and then compare it to the coverage that Donald Trump got uh, last year in 2020. And what it found, amazingly enough, was that Biden's coverage was as bad as Trump's and sometimes worse. And, and Milbank described it this way. He said, in 2020, Trump presided over a worst-in-world pandemic response that caused hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths, held a super-spreader event at the White House and got COVID-19 himself, praised QAnon adherents, embraced violent white supremacists, waged a racist campaign against Black Lives Matter demonstrators, attempted to discredit mail-in voting, refused to accept his defeat in a free and fair election, leading eventually to the violence of January 6th and causing tens of millions to accept the big lie, the worst of more than 30,000 lies Donald Trump told in office. And yet, Trump got press coverage as favorable as, or better than, Joe Biden is getting today. Sure, Biden's had his troubles with the Delta variant, Afghanistan, and inflation, but the economy is rebounding impressively. He's signed major legislation. He's restored some measure of decency, calm, and respect for democratic institutions. End quote. So my question is, what do we do about this? Is the press just not equipped to handle an anti-democratic, anti-little-d democratic a proto-authoritarian outlier like Donald Trump. And is that enabling his comeback? Liz, let's start with you. Well, first of all, I'm always skeptical of these stories that quote these like media analytic things. It seems like yeah. it's always just sort of an advertisement for them. And I'm not sure how accurate that is. Um, so I don't want to put too much credence in that. I read the story, um, but I think I get the overall sentiment here. Um, and I, I, I honestly I have a really hard time believing that if, if you look at all the TV coverage, all the cable coverage, that the sentiment was more negative for Biden than for Trump. Putting that aside, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I get Dana Milbank's point that, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden stumbling over a word at a press conference or Kamala Harris using non Bluetooth earphones is not the same thing as Donald Trump, you know, whipping up his um, supporters in a frenzy and getting them to believe, to storm the Capitol or to not accept the election results. And we shouldn't equate those two things. Um, uh, but, you know, it comes with the territory. Joe Biden, any, any president is going to get criticism in the press. Um, and so I think it, it's just incumbent on the Biden administration to deal with it. Um, and the press probably could be a little bit more responsible in how they handle it, how they handle, you know, Kevin McCarthy, how they handle these guys who go on the Sunday shows and still are unwilling to, um, you know, sack up and admit that Donald Trump lost the election. So the press could be a little tougher there. But, you know, I think getting criticized comes with the territory of being president. And that's where I disagree a little bit with what Milbank had to say. Mike, the premise here is that the country's in this existential struggle, not between two parties, but between sort of democratic self-governance and an authoritarian alternative. Uh, do you think that is correct? I think it's oversimplified. I, I think the, I'm, I'm with Liz, the Milbeck thing is a little specious. It's the term paper thing again, what the Democrats do. Oh, the media gave Trump a B and we got a B minus, so... The media is corrupt. How do we fix the media? That sounds pretty authoritarian to me right there. 
Um, and I don't know how they score this stuff. It is tricky. A lot of the Trump infractions were worse on the existential scale, but they're also process. Liz's cats uh, disagree with you, Mike, by the way. Uh, yeah, so, well, yes, they, yeah, my cat is very vocal, yeah. Um, <laughs> the cat's a big uh, Elizabeth Warren supporter. And, no, uh, it sounds like more Trumpian howling to me, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's an uh, it orange that existential cat, actually, danger right? line that set the, the cat ablaze. Uh, <laughs> so, it, you know, it... And both sides like to whine about their media coverage. The fact is, here's what the press likes. It's the old Roger Ailes thing. If your candidate cures cancer in the morning and falls into an orchestra pit in the afternoon, the story is going to be falling into the orchestra pit. And Biden has had big, flashy breakthrough problems. The fleeing Kabul, a.k.a. Saigon in 75. Visual images, very big. Inflation, price of gas at the pump. These new stickers I'm seeing all over gas pumps. Joe Biden did this, pointing at the price. Um, those are meat and potato things. Well, Trump generated, and I was on board. I mean, I've hated Trump since 1993. I don't know where all these Johnny-come-ladies <laughs> were. I was doing the governor of New Jersey's campaigns, and he was a huge problem in Atlantic City. But anyway, uh, the Trump thing is one outrage after another to the kind of the intelligentsia. Now, I'm an elitist. I care about the intelligentsia. Um, but, but I can understand how the turbulence of Biden COVID, he caught the Delta variant, which probably had equal media volume to the problems Trump had. So I get the moral weighting that, that Dana's working on there, that Trump is more systemically outrageous and poisonous and toxic. But the fact that Mm -hmm. Biden's getting crappy press too, the the press is in the crappy press business. Uh, and you know, we know from psychological studies that a grievance story will get seven times the click of any other story, and they, they count those because they monetize them, uh, particularly the cable news business. Don't get me started. So what what do we do about it? Well, the, the, these are the rules we have, and the Democrats have to learn how to play effectively on them and get out of the narcissism of identity. That would be my first thing. The second thing is, do we have fundamental lose democracy problems here, is the premise of your question indicated. And I think the country is far too ornery and far too well-armed to fall into dictatorship. But I do believe we could be stuck in kind of a lost decade of woke stopo, intolerant, stupidity on the left, and thuggery and kind of a uh, fascism light American style, USA number one, I don't take vaccines, we just beat up a college professor in the parking lot for having fancy opinions about biology. We could fall into that. And we're, we're tickling the whiskers of that now. And Trump is a big part of it because he's got, he's become the, the, the deity of this kind of church of stupidity. Now I'm betting on the actuarial charts and some bad meatloaf may cure the problem in the short term. And I'm not sure there's anybody else who could fill that Trump void, but yeah, we could get to our own, American style that is not a dictatorship, but our democracy will be paralyzed by stupidity and wokeism versus thuggish authoritarian vibe stuff. But does that mean the Congress is under arrest and Trump's in a generalissimo outfit or any of that? I I don't believe that. And also remember the power of the state in the U S to enforce anything is police organs in the military. And our military is a citizen's army. And they take an oath to the Constitution of the United States. I have some faith in that institution if things go too far um, to, to, uh, uh, to, to maintain uh, constitutional order in the U.S. I don't know that I'm quite as uh, optimistic as you are. Well, you're um, a Democrat. There's a B on the term paper. You're going great. Or a, uh, there's an F uh, for democracy right now. And I, I agree it's troubling, but. Maybe I'm more of an optimist. It's a Republican thing. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I just, I worry that the lesson that Trump learned last time is you got to surround yourself purely with thugs and loyalists, that he doesn't care at all about the laws or the norms or the institutions. The presidents have enormous power. And that one thing we learned over the course of the Trump presidency is that um, a lot of the limits are kind of tradition rather than written into the law. And previous presidents wouldn't have crossed certain lines that Trump has no problem crossing. And the, the takeaway for him was that he wasn't aggressive enough, that he didn't crush dissent uh, within what he calls the deep state and among his opponents enough. And I think there's a, a, a not insubstantial chance that he comes back 
and and what happens if if God forbid he uh, well he wins? No, I, look, it is a fear, and my advice to the Democrats is not to wring hands about it, but go nominate a Steve Bullock, not a Stacey Abrams for president. Why don't you beat him well, at the election yeah. with a strong candidate who appeals to everybody, not just the Democratic base? And, and what I was just going to say, I had a little bit of pushback to you, Mike, on that, is that when you're t- like, yes, does the squad get the lion's share of, of press attention? They do. Because we know, as you said, what the press looks for. You know, I don't think the press necessarily has a left or right bias. They have a bias toward conflict, and the squad gives them that. But, you know, I think the Democratic Party is filled a lot more with you know, Mark Kelly's and um, the senator from Arizona, uh, Colin Allred, the congressman from Dallas, um, and uh, moderates and people who are much more in tune with with Democrats. Well, even a lot of the people of color, we shouldn't give people the impression that it's all just, I mean, like Raphael Warnock in Georgia performed extraordinarily well. Um, And I think, I think Mike may be underestimating Stacey Abrams as a, as a political figure. But anyway, I take your point about the, what the press focuses on and, and who the actual legislators are. Yeah. I think Trump starts out if he's nominated again, and I'm not locked into this camp that he's running and it's all over, but if he's nominated, the veritable that'll let Trump be defeated, as would be natural or not, is going to be the Democratic nominee who they choose. So the stakes couldn't be higher for the Dems. And I worry, again, I think their rank and file voters get it. I, I worry about the culture of the leadership in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I, my, I guess my thing is, I think that Trump is a fundamentally lazy guy. Um, he, he He's grifting, like, I, I saw some numbers on how much he was raising off of that fundraising list. And if I had to make a prediction, it would be that he's just going to try to bankrupt all of his supporters, run away with that money, and not run again. Um, but and probably wait till the last minute. So I don't necessarily, I could be very wrong, but I, I don't see him running again because again, I think he's a fundamentally lazy person who cares mostly about money yeah. and he's got a perfect setup for himself right now. Well, I think there's some truth to that, but he is going to, with the mind of a 65 year old cranky racist, high dollar private business donor, he's going to look at the democratic opponent and that'll drive a lot of his calculus. So if it's somebody that mm-hmm. looks like the democratic base, he'll be encouraged. If it's somebody who looks more like a Biden, he won't be. That's my guess. A version of your take, which I pretty much agree with. Well, as they say on cable news, to be continued. <laughs> <laughs> and we will see. There you go. You put a button on it. That I was did. Good. I did yeah. ever so slightly. Um, awkwardly, adroit. but still no, yeah, oh, very good. Yeah. Thank yeah, you very yeah. much. No, All Katie's right. in trouble. She better come back from St. Bart's or whatever and reclaim the throne here. <laughs> she, she's got competition. Well oh done. yeah. Right. Well, Murphy, Liz, thank you so much for doing this and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So thanks again to my guests, Mike Murphy and Liz Smith. Mike has his own amazing political podcast with David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs, which is called Hacks on Tap. You can find it on all your favorite podcast purveyors. You can also find him on Twitter at Murphy Mike and find Liz on Twitter at Liz Smith. But here's the catch. Liz is spelled L-I-S, not L-I-Z. I'm Brian Goldsmith. You can find me at GoldsmithB on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Katie, for having me on. I'm sure your listeners are going to be quite relieved to hear that you are on your way back. Oh, and by the way, everyone, if you haven't, please register to vote. You can't really participate in our politics without voting. Listening to the podcast isn't enough. So you can check with your state or you can go to vote.gov. Thank you to both my guest hosts, Allison Roman and Brian Goldsmith for helping me out. But now it's time to pass the mic because I'm back, baby. And listeners, I have such a treat for you. Well, I hope it's a treat. It was a treat for me to put it together. Next week, I'm sharing an intimate look at my book tour, the highlights, the lowlights. Actually, there weren't any special guests and so much more. That's next week on Next Question. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, 
and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecurric.com. You can also find me at katiecurric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.